you tonight, Derek. Please give a warm welcome to Derek Burnside. Thank you so much, Dave. It's, uh, it's a great privilege to be with you. I'm not, I'm not much of a walker, I'm afraid, like Rob, but uh, he sends his love and greetings to you. Uh, I know he's well known in these parts, and, uh, and he said anyone who knows him, he's, uh, he sends his love and greetings. So, yeah, and please pray for me. I am filling small shoes that are also very big with Rob Whitaker, so I'd really appreciate your prayers. Rob's retiring as principal uh, in June, and I'll be taking over, and I'm just up at the moment shadowing him for, for a while, as Dave said. Um, so thank you so much for having me, Keswick in Bradford, thank you for inviting me, and, uh, and Church on the Way, thank you for disrupting your usual teaching pattern to sin this evening, it's really generous of you, and it's just brilliant to be here. Can you imagine this, uh, you are, you're, rowing out to ocean, to, you're rowing out in the ocean in a rowboat, and uh, you get to a certain point and you stop, and in the boat with you, you have a bucket, and the bucket has a rope on it. And holding on to the end of the rope, you throw the bucket overboard until the bucket sinks into the ocean. Which is true? Is the ocean in the bucket or is the bucket in the ocean? Both. Okay, it's both, isn't it? Now, let's picture this. The ocean is God and we're the bucket. Okay, the ocean is God and we're the bucket. So when we become Christians, which is true, is, is God in us... Or are we in God? Both. Isn't it? Both. So let me ask you another question. Which of those two ideas do you think about most when you think about what it means to be a Christian? Do you think that more about the fact that Christ is in you? Or do you think more about the fact that you are in Christ? Because they're both biblical ideas, aren't they? Both thoroughly biblical ideas. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Paul says to Colossians and... Paul uses the phrase being in Christ probably more than any other phrase in the New Testament to describe what it means to be a Christian. And I, this thing hit me a few months ago. It hit me that I think much more about Jesus being in me than I do about me being in Christ. You, you may be different, but I, I was just trying to think about which of those two very biblical ideas I focused on most when I thought about what it was to be a Christian, a Christ follower, and the, the idea that Jesus Christ lives in me by his Holy Spirit, I think about that a lot more than I do about the fact that I am in him. And I just wanted to put that right, self. Uh, and that might not be a problem for you. You might think about you being in Christ a whole load, which is great. You might have been thinking in a much more balanced, biblical way than I was. So when I was invited to do um, Keswick in Bradford, uh, I asked um, Kevin... Uh, if that would be a good topic, the topic of, of what it means for us to be in Christ. And he thought it might be. And that's what we've been doing over these last few weeks. So, Steve, we can have the, the slides up. That would be great. Thank you very much, uh, if that's possible. So, a quote from uh, an Australian uh, pastor called Rory Shiner. Now, if you've been at Sunbridge already this weekend, you've heard this already, forgive me, but I thought there'd be a few folks here for whom this was the first and maybe only Keswick and Bradford moment. So I'm going to repeat just this. So guys, forgive me. I hope you agree it bears repetition. He says this. We struggle to think about what it means to be in Christ because that's not language we normally use, is it? We don't often talk about one person being in another person. We do occasionally in incredibly intimate settings. But normally we're not really talking about one person being in another person. And so Shiner says he wanted an image that just helped him with this. And he came up with this one. He said, imagine... Imagine you're flying to Australia, 
and imagine that you, there's a plane that's flying to Australia. And he asks this question. What relationship do you need to have to the plane? He says this. Would it help to be under the plane to submit yourself to the plane's eminent authority in the whole flying to Melbourne thing? Would it help to be inspired by the plane? To watch it fly off and whisper, one day, I hope to do that too. What about following the plane? You know the plane's going to Melbourne, and, if, and so it stands to reason that if you take note of the direction it goes and pursue it, then you too will end up there. Of course, he says, the key relationship you need with the plane is not to be under it or behind it or inspired by it. You need to be in it. Why? Because by being in the plane, what happens to the plane will also happen to you. The question, did you get to Melbourne, will be part of a bigger question, did the plane get to Melbourne? And if the answer to the second question is yes and you were in the plane, then what happened to the plane will also have happened to you. And Shina says this, I think at heart, the biblical idea of being in Christ is something like that. According to the New Testament, to be in Christ is to say that by union with him, whatever is true of him is now true of us. He died, we died. He's raised, we are and will be raised. He is vindicated, we are vindicated. He is loved, we are loved, and so on, all because we are in him. And when I read that, uh, a little penny dropped. I should have you know, realised that years and years ago. I've been a Christian quite a while now. But I just found that a really helpful image of what it is to be in the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm in him. So where he goes, I go. What he has been through, I go through. If he is now seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven, I am seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven. Because I am in the Lord Jesus Christ. So, just in case you're interested, over these last couple of days we've been doing this, we thought about what it means to be in Christ. And last night, at some brief, we thought about this. Being in Christ means we are unshakably safe. We are unshakably safe. Nothing, Paul says, can separate us from the love of God in Christ. And then this morning we were thinking about the fact that in Christ we are immeasurably loved. Uh, In Jesus, and the Father loves the Son, the way the Father loves the Son is the way the Father loves us. So this morning we were thinking about the way the Father loves Jesus, and thinking that that's the love we now receive from the Father as well. That's a stunning thing, isn't it? And then tonight we're going to think about this. In Christ we're fully equipped. And then if you are around tomorrow night and Tuesday night, you'd be more than welcome down at Sunbridge. Well, tomorrow night we'll be thinking about the fact that in Christ we're utterly transformed. And on Tuesday night we'll be thinking about the fact that we are united as one. But if this is all you can do this weekend, it's just brilliant to see you and thank you so much for coming. So can we think about this? Um, The glorious, stupendous reality of being in Christ, in part, means this. In Jesus, we are fully equipped. And what I want to do tonight for the few minutes we've got left is this. I want to give us a quick intro to the idea that we're equipped in Christ. And then I want to think about three particular ways in which we're equipped. Could have gone for hundreds, but you want to get home tonight. So we're just going to do three. So so just some general stuff about being equipped in the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, When I started thinking about it, this is one of the first verses... I was drawn to, I'm sorry if the text is too small for you, it's Ephesians chapter 1, if you want to look it up in your own Bibles, Ephesians 1, verses 22 and 23, and Paul says this, 
God placed all things under Jesus' feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Let me read that again. That's so mind-blowing. Ephesians 1, 22, 23. God placed all things under Jesus' feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. So can we just think about that just for uh, a minute? So what, is it, what does Paul tell us? Uh, Jesus is in charge of everything. He's king, as we've been singing so beautifully. God placed all things under his feet. So he's, he's, he's the king of the cosmos, and he's the head of the church. The, uh, everything for the church, which is his body. And then you've got this incredible phrase, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Seems to say the church is the fullness of Jesus who fills everything in every way. What does that mean? And if we're absolutely honest, I don't think anyone really knows what that means. If you read the commentaries, people just aren't sure what Paul means. He could mean probably one of two or three things, but let's just take two of them. One thing he might mean by that is, Jesus is completed by the church. The church is the fullness, the completion of Christ. Now, some of you are thinking, hang on, that's heresy. How can churches complete Jesus? And interestingly, that doctrine was held by some of the early reformers, including Calvin. And the point he was making was was this kind of point. He said, "Uh, a a groom is completed by the bride. A head is completed by the body. And in that sense, the church is the fullness of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul might mean that. For the reasons you might be uncomfortable with it, I'm a little bit uncomfortable with that interpretation too. Uh, I think I prefer this interpretation. This is the way John Stott paraphrases it in his, one of his commentaries on Ephesians. He says this, Christ, who fills the church, fills the universe also. But here's the point for what we're thinking about tonight. Jesus Christ is the king of the cosmos, and he is our king. How equipped are we? If, if our king is the one who has put, who's, who's, who the father has put everything under the feet of, how well equipped are we? What is not possible for people who are in the one who is the king of the cosmos? That's, that's amazing, isn't it? Here's, here's another uh, Pauline verse, a little bit later in Ephesians, Ephesians 3, 10 to 11. He says this, his intent was that now, through the church, the manifold, that means multicoloured. In the uh, Greek translation of the Old Testament, it's the same word that was used for Joseph's multicoloured coat. So his intent was that now, through the church, the multicoloured, manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. I find that another stunning verse. Do you see what Paul's saying in that verse? He's saying, what the church does is a lesson to the heavenly authorities, to to angels, he probably means, I think. Angels are learning about the gospel through watching the church. That's how fully equipped we are. We've become a kind of college that angels look in on. In fact, I think we've got a quote from... Uh, this guy, John Mackay, was um, an old Scottish Presbyterian, 20th century pastor and commentator, wrote some great commentaries. 
And in his commentary on Ephesians, he said this, the history of the Christian church becomes a graduate school for angels. So what we're doing as church is so significant, isn't it? It's not just a witness to the world as we know it is, and as I know that you as a church take so seriously. What we're doing is we are, we are a witness to the heavenlies, to angelic beings. And we are equipped in Christ to fulfill that incredible commission. To take the good news not just to, to, to human beings, but somehow, in ways I don't think we can even really begin to, to grasp. We're being watched and, and, um, and we're, we're a lesson to the heavenlies. I, I wonder if it works like this. Uh, some Angels see somebody come to Christ and they understand the gospel as they see human beings come to Christ. I wonder if it looks like that. It looks like angels may not be omniscient, doesn't it? Um, two people in a church have fallen out and they manage to do that lovely thing where they go to one another and uh, admit sin to each other and confess sin and they're reconciled. They forgive as they have been forgiven. Uh, the church is the gospel made visible. So, so they, they act out the gospel of grace and forgiveness they've received from Jesus. And as the, the heavenlies watch that, they, they understand a little bit more about the great good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. We've got this incredible job to do as church, and we are equipped in the Lord Jesus Christ to it. Uh, here's another verse that just sprang out at me. When I went to uni for the first time, one of the guys in uh, the church I was going to back home gave me a lovely new Bible. I was going to go and do philosophy at university, and he was worried that was going to just mess up my faith. So he gave me a massive study Bible in a huge leather cover, which was a real kindness. And, uh, and, and the, co- the cover he'd chosen had this verse on the front of it. Colossians 2 verse 3. In Jesus Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. That's, that's how equipped we are. In Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Where are we? We're in Christ. So we have access to all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge in the Lord Jesus. Here's another uh, old um, commentator, Albert Barnes, an American, actually, 19th century American. He said this, Christ is the great treasure house where, where are found all the wisdom and knowledge needful for people. He's the treasure house of wisdom and we are in him. We are fully, fully equipped. So that's why James can say, can't he, James 1 verse 5, if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault and it will be given to you. Starting at Cape and Ray is a, a pretty daunting experience. You, you talk to people who, who know a bit about Cape and Ray and they say things like this to you, very helpful things. Oh, you've got some big shoes to fill. Ooh, Rob Whitaker. Ooh, Charles Price. Ooh, L.A.T. Van Doren. Ooh, Mark Thomas. Ian Thomas. Ooh, big shoes to fill. And that's very, very true. And I'm not even going to try. I'm just going to be myself. Um, but uh, here's, one of, here's one of the predecessors on the faculty of Cape and Ray. I don't know if anyone... Does anyone here remember uh, Dr. John Hunter? Do you remember John Hunter? He's, he seems like, a, a, some, in some ways, a sort of f- f- forgotten figure of Cape and Ray's history. But he was massively significant in the, in the, f- the early days, the 50s and the 60s especially, I think. And um, apparently, this is what Hunter used to do. Students and staff would come into his office and they would pour out his heart to them with whatever brokenness or sin or struggle or broken relationship, uh, mental health struggle, whatever it was they were going through, and Hunter would listen to them compassionately and lovingly and then he would summarise for them in a phrase what he thought 
the issue they'd brought to him was, just to make sure he'd got it right and he'd heard, and they'd say, yeah, that's right. And then Hunter would pull, out a, pull open a, a desk drawer, pull out a card from his desk drawer, and on the card was written, for this, and there was a gap, and he would write in the gap the problem the student had brought to him. And then underneath that, the gap, it said, I have Jesus. For this, whatever, the th- whatever it was, I have Jesus. His, his point was, this thing that we've just talked about and prayed through and, and, and you've confessed, and, and this thing which seems so overwhelming to you, for this, you have Jesus. In Christ, you are fully equipped for whatever life throws at you. For this, we have Jesus. Uh, when I was um, getting ready to come here, I got a card from a lady who I'd never met before, and she'd, said she'd made up a little kind of postcard for me with, of a saying by Major Ian Thomas, who was the founder of Cape and Ray. And uh, the saying is this, it was a picture of the feet of Jesus walking on water, and the phrase just said, whatever threatens to overwhelm me is under the feet of Jesus. Isn't that great? Whatever threatens to overwhelm me is under the feet of Jesus. For this, I have Jesus. Interestingly, Charles Price, who worked with John Hunter, I think, telling a spring harvest evening celebration about that, Hunter and his cards, and for this I have Jesus, and sitting behind Charles as he was preaching was a, a young worship leader, I think it was back in the 80s, called Graham Kendrick. And Graham Kendrick heard this phrase, for this I have Jesus, for this I have Jesus, for this I have Jesus, that, um, that uh, Charles kept preaching, and he thought, thought that would make a great song. And you, do you know the song? For this I have Jesus. And on his website, Kendrick says this about, about that song. He says, it's, it's turned out to be one of those songs that encourage people who are going through difficulties, a formula to help them bring their problems to Christ instead of resorting to worrying, fear and anxiety and blaming other people, which is always what we tend to do when things go wrong. For this I have Jesus. Now, for some here tonight, that very, very simple idea, that might be all you need tonight, that might be all you need. You might have come here tonight feeling you're about to be overwhelmed by something which is threatening you. Whatever it is, it's under the feet of Jesus Christ. Uh, You are in Christ, and in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Whatever you face, for this, you have Jesus. You are thoroughly equipped. I am thoroughly equipped because I am in Christ. And as I start this new chapter of my life, I'm really grateful for truth. That might be all you need tonight. But here's the bad news. There are three other things to get through. So we're going to do it pretty quickly, okay? So that's just a kind of introduction to what it is to be equipped in Christ. Uh, we could have said many other things. I want to just think about three, three things as we finish tonight that's, that strike me that we are thoroughly equipped for in Jesus. And here's the first one. In Christ, we are thoroughly equipped to grow and bear fruit. In Christ, we are thoroughly equipped to grow and bear fruit. And you probably guessed where we're going with this one. John 15, verse 5. And by the way, as, you've, as you may have gathered tonight, we're not going to be in one passage all the time. We're going to be doing what the posh name for it is systematic theology, where we kind of dot all over the Bible to, to pull a theme together from various parts of Scripture. But John 15, 5, Jesus says this, I'm the vine, and you are the branches. And if you remain in me, and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me... You can do nothing. Let me read that again. John 15 verse 5. I'm the vine, you are the branches. 
If you, and there's the key word, if you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. You will bear much fruit. It's a promise. Apart from me, you can do nothing. So he says, if you remain in me, you will bear fruit. If you remain in me, you are thoroughly equipped to bear fruit for the kingdom of God. I've had several conversations with folks over the last couple of days for whom church is not easy. You know, church, church is a, a struggle. Church is hard work that at times seems to bear very little fruit. And yet Jesus promises us, if you remain in me, you will bear fruit. It's a promise, brothers and sisters. And even if what is visible does not at the moment match it, let's stand on the promise, shall we? Remaining isn't a terribly exciting word, is it? Uh, I was in the same church for 31 years, and uh, I left last month to come and work up at Cape and Ray. And it's really interesting how much fuss people make of you when you leave. (laughs) People make a lot of fuss of people who leave. If you're leaving well, they make a lot of fuss. Parties, presents, you know, people say lovely things about you. Uh, A lot of fuss about leaving. Um, And I was was thinking, why do we never make a fuss about people who remain until they die? Then we make a fuss of them. But why don't we make a fuss about people who remain? The remainers, the stickers, the stayers. Because there's nothing very glamorous about remaining, is there? It's, it's the same, it's the same, it's the same. You're continuing in something. But Jesus says, if, if you remain in me, you stick in me. If you just keep doing all the lovely things that it means to just remain in the Lord Jesus Christ, to be nourished by his word, to be open to his spirit, to be in fellowship with his people, to be obedient to what he asks us to do. If we remain in Christ, we just will bear fruit. Uh, One of the books that really helped me in in preparing this little series was Peter Lewis's book called Becoming Christ-like. Peter is the pastor of of a church in Nottingham called Cornerstone. And this book, I think it was published last year, it's very, I found it very helpful. And he says this about this verse. Fruit will differ in different lives at different times. Some will bear fruit in sickness and bereavement. Others in their working lives and vocations. That's really important. It's all important, but that's one I think we sometimes underestimate. Where are you going to be tomorrow morning if you're in work? Uh, that's, you're going to bear fruit there. You're going to bear fruit there. Others as evangelists and pastors and teachers, and sometimes the fruit will appear long after an event. Long after an event. So could I just encourage any of us who might be feeling tonight that we are labouring hard in the harvest field and we're not actually seeing much of a harvest. If you are remaining in Christ, which I strongly suspect you are, you will bear fruit. It's just our Lord's promise. You're in him and he is the source of awfulness and he will thoroughly equip you for everything that you are called to do. Uh, we do a little newsletter from Cape and Ray, an, e- an e- email newsletter. Um, I'm so new, I can't work out yet whether it's every week or every month. Some of you will know better than I do. But in the one that's just come out, Rob has written a little bit on it, and he, and he finishes by, by saying this. Like all men, he's quoting an author that he doesn't actually accredit, so it's, these aren't his words, but it's just a great quote. Like all men, I love and prefer the sunny uplands of experience when health, happiness, and success abound. But I've learned far more about God and life and myself in the darkness of fear and failure than I've ever learned in the sunshine. 
There are such things as the treasures of darkness. The darkness, thank God, passes, but what one learns in the darkness, one possesses forever. It might be that you're in a pretty dark season at the moment, but you will bear great fruit if you remain in Christ. And it might be that in the periods of apparent inactivity, in the wintry seasons, you're going to bear more fruit than you can even begin to imagine. You may not even see it in your lifetime, but let's, let's trust the Saviour. Let me just give a little plug before we move on. Um, I don't know if you've ever, any of you come across this resource. London Institute of Contemporary Christianity, Mark Green's crowd, started by John Stott, LICC, have produced some fantastic resources for churches to use. Um, this one's called Life on the Front Line, and the second one is called Fruitfulness on the Front Line. And they're designed to equip Christians to be whole life disciples in the place God puts them Monday through Saturday. The idea that we are missionaries sent by our Saviour into the world. The place you're going to tomorrow morning is not some random mistake. God is as much with you and working through you there as he is here this evening. Um, so if you've never come across that, we used it. We used both series at Belmont. And for some people it just transformed the way they saw their workplaces or their retirements or their unemployment or whatever their, their weekday existence was. Just transformed it. So just a little plug in case that's helpful for anybody. So first thing, we're in Christ, we're equipped to grow and bear fruit. And sometimes that's going to be painful, isn't it? Every branch that doesn't bear, the fa- the, but doesn't bear fruit, the Father prunes so that it'll be even more fruitful. Uh, John 15, verse 5. And let's just re- bear that in mind. If we're going through a season at the moment which is feeling a little bit tough, it might be that we're just being pruned. Here's another old dead saint who I find hugely inspiring, Jonathan Edwards, the American reformer. And he says this. I think it's a tough quote, but see what you make of it. Let's not think of things as coming from men, but to have respect to them chiefly as God, as ordered by his love and wisdom, even when their immediate source might be malice or carelessness of a fellow man. Then we shall be disposed to receive them as kindly ordered by God, and be far from any ruffle or tumult of mind on account of them. You get what he's saying? When you, when you go through the stinky stuff in life, the horrible stuff, when we experience false accusations or betrayals or bullying or, uh, or heartbreak or any of the ugliness that comes to us in life, Edward says, how about if we, if we see all of these things basically as, as pruning? God's allowing these things in our lives to prune us to make us even more fruitful. Uh, For this, we have Christ, and we will bear fruit. Okay, just two more things, and and I'm done. So in Christ, we are fully equipped to bear fruit. Second of the three is this. In Christ, we are fully equipped to love, to love. So here's another stunning verse, 2 Peter 1, verses 3 to 4. He says this. His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life. In Christ we are fully equipped. His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. And through these things he's given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. Now, those verses are rich, aren't they? So there's this little one right at the top. His divine power has given us 
everything we need for a godly life. And then later on he says, his very great and precious promises enable us to participate in the divine nature. Now, if that's not equipping, I just don't know what is. Uh, Recently, we had to do a little bit of an overhaul of our pastoral care in our church back down in Exeter for this reason. We noticed we'd got into a habit, and it was not a healthy habit. And the habit we'd got into was this. Somebody would come with a a significant pastoral need, and, um, and if it was a pastoral need of a particular category, we would almost immediately outsource it to a professional. I don't know if if that rings any bells with you in your church and pastoral care. I hope you were wiser than we did, than we were. So, for example, if a couple came who were just having major struggles in their marriage, we would would immediately call in an external marriage counsellor. If somebody came to us reporting sexual abuse in their childhood, we would immediately outsource them to some kind of secular professional who was expert in that area, and, and so on. And what we wouldn't do, as often as we should have done, was actually sit down with them with our Bibles open and speak God's truth into that situation. Now, please, please don't mishear me. I am not saying that churches should not use secular expertise in these areas. I think it's actually probably really, really, really helpful that we do. There is a huge amount of worldly wisdom out there which sometimes will be massively helpful and churches should access it and God will use it and work through it. Some of you will be professionals in those kinds of areas and you will know the healing power that God brings through your expertise and your, and your secular training. So we affirm that absolutely. Our mistake was not that we called those people in. Our mistake was that we only tended to call those people in. And that what we didn't do was take the promises of these verses seriously. His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life. His great and precious promises help us engage the divine nature, having escaped the corruption of the world. And what we started getting better at doing was alongside the professional help we would seek for people in significant pastoral distress, we would make sure that regularly we sat them down with skilled, gifted pastors from within church who knew their Bibles well, who could speak God's truth into their pain and their hurt and their brokenness, alongside other external help. Now, I know you're thinking, duh, I know you're thinking that, and you're right too, because we were slow on that. But um, we just weren't taking seriously enough the sufficiency that we have in Christ to love to help, to heal. Larry Crack, who's um, a, a psychologist and a pastor and a Christian and American, in a fantastic book called Connections, he, he's, he picks this up and he says this, we, churches have made a terrible mistake. For most of this century, we have wrongly defined soul wounds as psychological disorders and delegated their treatment to trained specialists. Damaged psyches aren't the problem. The problem is disconnected souls. What we need is connection. What we need is a healing community. Now, remember, he's a psychologist and psychiatrist by training. So he's not dismissing these disciplines. But he's saying the power of God's people together in Christ, fully equipped, we have the strength to love one another, to to see 
God's healing power flowing through our communities into one another's lives. And I don't doubt you see that here in church and the other churches represented tonight very vividly. Another old dead guy, William Cooper. Um, fantastic, fantastic poet. Okay? Just, just, a, uh, just a great poet. And um, here's, here's one of Cooper's poems. Uh, so, 18th century poet and hymn writer, very famous hymn writer. He wrote this, God moves in a mysterious way. We think this was the guy who coined the phrase, God moves in a mysterious way, in the poem, Light Shining Darkness. God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Lovely. Do you know anything about William Cooper? Um, he, he was a really influential guy. He was a friend of John Newton. Uh, he was really involved in the uh, abolition of slavery. He wrote abolitionist hymns. Uh, he was the kind of forerunner of the romantic poets. Coleridge and Wordsworth really admired this guy's poetry. He was a really significant figure. And he, he was also, and he suffered incredible bouts of severe mental illness. Uh, he, he suffered probably what we today call bipolar disorder, what we used to call manic depression. He went through such vivid periods of bad mental health that for two years in the 18th century he was committed to an insane asylum. Can you imagine how grim that was? And, and that, that plagued him, that illness, as it does many people, right through his life. And in each bout of illness, Cooper's great strength and his great resource was the fact that he was a Christian, an evangelical Christian, and he was in Christ and despite these agonies of illness that he, he would keep going through, his anchor throughout all those times was the fact that he was in Christ. In Christ, he had the resources, he had the promises that he could stand firm on the rock of Jesus, even in that kind of distress and that kind of dismay. Tim Chester tells this story in his brilliant little book, Total Church, and he says this, However complicated the causes of Cooper's struggles, in Christ... He had the resources to respond in a godly way. So brothers and sisters, just in case there's someone here tonight who feels like you're walking through the valley of the shadow of death, maybe, maybe in a room of this size, this number of people, um, there's going to be several of us who struggle with mental challenges. In the midst of it, alongside all the superb secular help I'm sure you're getting, are you accessing just some of the precious promises of the Lord Jesus? In him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. One of my favourite authors is this guy, Eugene Peterson. He's alive, everybody. Um, Peterson. Uh, he's the guy who translated the Bible into the paraphrase, the message. Um, but he's, he's written some beautiful pastoral theology about Eugene Peterson. And I've met this guy. I, I studied under him uh, for a semester. And he's one of the most lovely, pastorally-minded men you can meet. A man who just seems so wonderfully loving. But look at what Peterson says. Every day... I put love on the line. There is nothing I am less good at, he says, than love. I am far better in competition than love. I'm far better at responding to my instincts and ambitions to the head and make my mark than I am at figuring out how to love another. I am trained and schooled in acquisitive skills and in getting my own way. And yet... And yet I decide every day to set aside what I can do best and attempt what I do very clumsily. Open myself up to the frustrations and the failures of love.
daring to believe that failing in love is better than succeeding in pride. Isn't that honest? He says, I want to love, but I'm terrible at loving. He says, I'm rubbish at loving. I'm great at pride, great at competition, great at putting other people down, terrible at loving. And yet he says, you know what I'm going to do? Every day, I'm going to prefer to fail in love than succeed in pride. And he does this, I know this guy, a little bit. He does this because he's in Christ. He's in Christ. And in Christ, we are thoroughly equipped to love. Right, one more, and we're done. And it's a quickie. In Christ, we are fully equipped to bear fruit. And in Christ, we are fully equipped to love. Last one tonight. In Christ, we are fully equipped to persevere. To persevere. So here's my key idea for this. We're back in Ephesians. Ephesians 3, 10 to 11. His intent was now, through the church, remember this? The manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenlies. This is, this is big, isn't it? We've got this incredible thing to do, this remarkable thing to do, to witness to the heavenlies. We need to persevere in it, and we can. 1 Peter 1, 3 to 5. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he's given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade. This inheritance is, and here's the important phrase, kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that's ready to be revealed in the last time. How do we keep going? How do we keep going? If, if you are labouring in church ministry, week in, week out, year in, year out, how do you do it? How do you keep going? What, what stops you just drifting away from the Lord Jesus Christ? What stops you from doing that? Well, here's the answer. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who, through faith, are shielded by God's power. That's how we keep going. That's perseverance. We don't crank ourselves up into another level of, of endurance. We are shielded by God's power. Faith is protected by him. We're enabled to persevere by him. John Piper, commenting on that verse, says this. Does God send his son to die for our sins, raise him from the dead to, to eternal life, cause us to be born again, and then stand back to see if we'll make it to heaven? No. What Peter wants us to see here is that God means for his people to be profoundly secure in him. He wants us to feel that God himself is doing everything that must be done to guarantee our final, eternal salvation. Picture it like this. Your salvation is like a chain that extends back into eternity and forward into eternity. It's an unbreakable chain. Wherever you look on this chain, you find links of iron forged by God himself. In the Lord Jesus Christ, you and I are thoroughly equipped to persevere. Now, I know that all kinds of questions might pop into our minds at the moment about prodigals or about those who seem to have a really vivid faith and have, have wandered away from it. And it might be that on Tuesday night we have a Q&A. We might want to ask that. But just for tonight, if you're feeling under the cosh as a Christian, and sometimes you feel the temptation just to walk away from the whole thing, how do you keep going? Because in Christ, you are thoroughly equipped to keep going. That's how you do it. Well, Paul puts it this way, 
Galatians 1.29, to this end, I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. Brothers and sisters, I'm done. Thank you so much for your attention on a really, on a really hot night. Um, should we just remind you where we've gone? In Christ is one of the descriptions of what it means to be a Christian. And in Christ we are thoroughly equipped. And we are thoroughly equipped to bear fruit. We are thoroughly equipped to love. And we are thoroughly equipped to keep going. Let's do it. In his strength. Let's pray together. And we're finished. Father, thank you for my dear brothers and sisters. Thank you, Father, for this beautiful uh, church building. And more importantly, thank you for the <coughs> beautiful uh, redeemed community that meets in it. And we ask you to bring upon them. Bless their generosity in hosting us tonight uh, as a convention, we pray. And I pray for all of us, Father, that we would just be those who increasingly revel in the security of being in Jesus. Revel in the fact we are this safe and we are this loved and we are this well equipped. And we pray that this week we would just be living in this in a new light and in a new strength and in a new power. And we ask these things in Jesus Christ's name and for his glory. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Derek. What a, a real encouragement, a real blessing of a word. Thank you so much. I hope you feel more equipped and uh, and ready, more confident in who you are in Him. And uh, I, I, um, Derek referred to the uh, the front um, front line book from Mark Green, LICC. The things that we've been doing on a Wednesday night have all been based on on that stuff. And um, you know. Often we talk about the sacred and secular divide. That's what he talks about in the book and how often we think we come to church to do the spiritual things and then we go to work and we do the worldly things. That's not what God intended for any of us. He intended us to be sold out for him 24-7. And, and uh, you know, just, just so many things just resonated with that. Thank you so much for that, Derek. It's been a real blessing. So I, I just want to again encourage you uh, to get along there tomorrow and uh, get down to Sunbridge. It would be great to fellowship with other brothers and sisters and uh, and to hear again the word that the Lord's placed on Derek's heart to share with us tomorrow night and Tuesday night. So um, if if you don't know, if you haven't been before, if you're a guest, we're going to serve tea and coffees just over the way there in the quiz shop. Uh, we just want to ask you to, to stay around and fellowship together, to um, be a blessing to one another. You don't have to rush off. Um, we'd love to serve you with tea and coffee. There may be some biscuits and things like that as well. So uh, I hope you have a really blessed week. And I know you'll have an even uh, more blessed week if you get yourself along to Sunbridge and uh, just encourage you to do that. So thank you again, Derek, and and thank you all for coming tonight. Uh, God bless you all.